Um, I teach a, uh, I teach an identity class uh, every year, and in that identity class, one of the things I encourage these students, these these uh, future ministers, to do is to create a foundational statement, like to imagine their life having a foundation under it, and then chiseling a, a statement into that foundation that says, "This is who I am, and and this is why I exist." And so, like churches have a mission statement, or ministries do, or businesses do, that this is we exist for this. And so I encourage them to, to put something in there, and, uh, and we talk about different ones that different people in history have used and that kind of stuff. And actually, um, we just sang mine. The hymn uh, that we sang this morning uh, has what I consider to be mine chiseled into there, which is, uh, take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Um, so all the former Ford students room were like, oh, that's it. Okay, that's the one he had. So, so um, anyway, it's that whole song, if you've never, if you weren't paying attention while you were singing it, every single thing about that hymn was taking all the different aspects of who we are, all the different aspects of our identity and saying, this aspect of my identity, all yours. This aspect of identity, take it, all yours. Every different aspect of our identity. You could lose any line out of that hymn um, and, uh, and find, find the gospel written in there from an identity perspective. It's really cool. Okay. Um, I know throughout history and even nowadays, sometimes there are pastors and preachers who take kind of an adversarial role with their audience. Um, they take, it's like, it's like, um, when you listen to them preach or something, it feels like kind of you're the villain and they're the hero and their job is to conquer you during the sermon type of thing. And, um, if you've ever experienced that or been on the receiving end of that, I know that's a thing. Maybe it's even a style. Um, I can't fathom it. Um, uh, maybe at one point I could have. I was a little more uh, finger pointy in my youth about uh, the way I liked to, to talk to people, and um, God hopefully grew me up out of some of that. Um, but I actually take the opposite tact. Like <clears throat> now, especially, I can't imagine facing what we're facing in our lives, in our nation, in our, in our churches um, without you guys. Like, it, I, I take the exact opposite perspective. Like, I just can't even fathom doing this, navigating these waters with anyone but you. Um, I just, I can't see it. I think, I think it would make me want to just quit. Um, uh, there's so much that's gone on, and yet here, I feel like not only can I preach like I did last Sunday, um, really from the heart, theologically, about a very tough topic, um, and do so openly knowing, man, it's, there's probably going to be people who have a problem with some of this and yet um, who know my heart. Uh, and I was, uh, I was amazed at the response uh, from you guys as a whole um, to last week's sermon and, and the discussion of that. Um, I felt pretty much wrung out. I didn't leave a lot on the field last week. And so um, that was amazing. But then Monday, I get to go talk at Regen. Um, which is our discipleship ministry for people dealing with different levels of addiction and that kind of stuff in their lives. And I got to tell the testimony, openly tell the testimony of my own addictions and my own struggles with the flesh and what those look like very openly. And, and just to know that's okay here. I mean, we're, we are a church that recognizes, man, we are broken. Uh, we, we are all messed up and we've all got different issues we're bringing here together. We are a gathering of the lost um, the, the, and the, a gathering of the sick Unfortunately, um, we have a savior and a shepherd who is, we are no longer lost because he found us. We're no longer sick because he heals us. Um, that's, the, that's the idea, the picture that we have. I think so often, uh, it's, it's so comforting though, I'm not supposed to, you don't even want me to pretend like I've got all the answers. Um, or if you did, you've gotten over it, apparently, uh, the, the, that you have to have this one guy who knows all the stuff, who's up here on the, on the ivory pillar, and that's just not a, an accurate uh, perspective of me at all. 
Um, so you've either uh, gotten over it or you're watching online because you left at some point. So um, I love how we visit each other, how we struggle and face challenges together, how we disciple each other's kids and we go to each other's funerals and we visit each other in the hospital. And um, it's just, it's such a beautiful picture. Um, so I just, I can't imagine the impossibility of facing the hard and even traumatic things that we face today without you guys. Um, Looking at Daniel of the last Daniel and the Peter's letters over the last uh, few years as a church or last couple of years as a church um, and, and keeping an eye on kind of where our culture is going certainly has confirmed um, the concerns that people have that that as a culture, as a nation, in many ways we are we are shifting and moving off of the original some of the original Judeo-Christian foundations, this, the original stones upon which our our our, our government and everything was built, um, the wisdom there. Um, and as that shifts off, it'll be interesting to see. Um, many of the founders predicted that if it ever shifted off of there, it would fall apart, collapse. Um, that what actually supported it were those fundamental viewpoints, and so that if it shifts off, it, it will fall apart. We'll see if they were right. Um, as we shift off of it. Um, but I think we are in the place where we're moving as a culture, as these uh, books have helped guide us through these um, ancient writings, uh, like Daniel or the, the gospel, the, the letters from Peter, um, as to how as a church we're supposed to respond to that, how as God's people we respond to a, a community or a culture that's not very friendly with us, that's antagonistic. Or now, even as we're watching what is probably, we're, we're moving for the stage from uh, the culture having just a, a base level of disrespect um, for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the teachings of Yahweh, um, and now moving probably starting the very first steps of even moving into a type of persecution for that. Um, at first, it'll mostly be based on standing or, or how people reject you or cancel you or shut you down or whatever. That'll be the first steps that we see in it because it is typically is culture to culture. And then probably some, some low-level economic type of things that you'll have uh, credit cards that won't work with you, insurance companies that won't work with you because you're Christian. We'll, we'll start seeing some of that stuff and there'll be some of that we'll see. And, and uh, already some of us who are in the business world have faced those moments. Um, but here's what I want you to hear is that God's word and the fact that I get to live out God's word with you people is why I'm not worried about it. Um, I'm not worried. I'm not even anxious about it. Like I'm not scared. I'm not anything. I, I have confidence in God to complete what he has started. He's taken his church through much, much worse stuff. Um, and, and I know enough of us here are sincere about this that that even when the pressure increases, we'll just deal with the consequences of that pressure and, and face whatever persecution that is. And I will have you and you will have me and we will have one another to, to walk through this together with. And so it's just, it's just interesting to me when I look at these passages, I don't come away worried or scared about what's coming. Exactly the opposite. I find great comfort and opportunity in some of these things. So um, I trust God to continue to lead us as he has so far. He will be faithful to complete what he started. In other words, I have the confidence that as we continue to water and tend the soil, God will keep making things grow. And, and that's what we're asking for, is that He will make things grow. The, the things that we can't, that we have really no say in, He will take care of those things and we'll be obedient with the rest of it. Um, as we continue to unpack these things, just this basic understanding, which was, came to be one of the themes of Israel this year, um, we have a couple of themes that we try to create during our Israel trip. Um, but for those who were there, you probably saw that I was even surprised at how the order and the organization of the places that we go, which we often have very little control over, the first two days, it seemed like the theme of every site we went to was this word, obey. Just obey me. 
You just obey me. You, you, your job is to do what I've told you to do. The consequences of that are my problem. You do what I told you to do. And we kept come up, coming up with that over and over again as the main themes, and that's not surprising. On that note, I want to update you on the resolutions that passed at the convention recently um, as I dive back into 2 Peter. Um, this will take a second, so I apologize for those of you who could not care less about this stuff. Um, you may just need to check out for a minute, which is fine, read something or you know, feed your Farmville people or something like that. But I'm going uh, I, I to, do, I do think this stuff is important, and so uh, as a church, for us to engage in this. And the first thing I need to do is make sure you even know what I'm talking about when I reference the Southern Baptist Convention, because the vast majority of Americans have no idea. Um, of course, that doesn't, as we know well from social media, having no idea what you're talking about has no bearing whatsoever on the conviction of your rightness about it. Um, uh, so let me make sure you actually know what this means. Um, South Spring Baptist Church is what would be called a Southern Baptist Church. We were planted by a Southern Baptist Church, and so we still are a Southern Baptist Church. Now, what does that mean that we're a Southern Baptist Church? This is where if I had a survey and I had you fill it out, most of you would have no idea um, what that even means. And there's a reason for that. Because it doesn't have some massive oversized influence in anything that we do here. Um, and by the way, that's not about us. That's not some kind of pride about us. That's what it means to be a Southern Baptist Church. The Southern Baptist Convention is not some authority that exists outside of the independent churches. This is, they're not our boss. They don't tell us what to do. Every single Baptist church, including Southern Baptist churches, is completely independent. They don't tell me where I work. They don't tell the church what to pay me. They don't tell us what bylaws to have. They don't even tell us what statement of faith we have to have. They have one that we're allowed to connect to or not if we choose to. Literally, the only authority that the convention has is to say, hey, this church is no longer following who we are, so they're no longer a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. Like, that's, that's the, you, you've just heard the entirety of their authority. That's it. And so what's, what happens instead, you may think of it as like a homeowner's association, that you go, oh, we moved into this neighborhood and now we're under its authority. Nope. It's not like that at all. It's more like a group of friends get together and say, hey, we want to pool our resources so we can accomplish some stuff that no one of us can do, but if we all got together and pooled our resources, then we could do it. That's it. That's why it's called the cooperative program. That's all it is. It's a program of churches that have decided to cooperate to accomplish things no one of us could do. Let me give you an example. Every, every year, our youth go and work and serve at a place called Breckenridge Village. At least most years, that's what we go and do during the summer. At some point, they go spend a week serving at Breckenridge Village. Breckenridge Village is a local ministry for uh, uh, handicapped or special needs adults. It's actually its own little village. Like, it's, it's really cool. If you've ever been out there, it's like, this is, this is pretty amazing what the setup is. There's no way we could afford to run that. I mean, it's, it's so expensive. It's probably the budget of South Spring would probably be almost entirely eaten up by what it would take to, to run that place. It's extremely expensive, but it's a very powerful, really cool uh, ministry. The, the people who, who live out there, the waiting list is huge. The people who work to live out there, who get to live out there, are greatly blessed. The families who get to put adults with special needs out there are greatly blessed. We could never do that on our own. There's almost 50,000 Southern Baptist churches in America. So what we do is we all send resources to a central pot, and then we even guide that. Like, for example, our church, the vast majority of what we send to the cooperative program goes to Breckenridge Village. 
Um, although it also goes to a few other ministries. And we get to say, we want our money to go here, 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 here. Or we can send it to the general budget or the missionary board, whatever we want to do. And, we, and that is, in fact, what we do. Our mission team every year designates these different things for that. That's the partnership that exists. It's just a group of friends. It just happens to be 50,000 churches worth of friends. But it's, it's a group of friends who got together and said, let's pool our resources and do something with it. That's it. If you're like me, you may have grown up with a family member, for example, in one of the Methodist churches, the United Methodist Church. The United Methodist Church is very different, or the Presbyterian churches. They have an overarching body of authority. I remember when my uncle would every once in a while get a letter that says, hey, we're moving you. He was a pastor. Remember Uncle Mac when he came and preached? Hey, Uncle Mac, you're, they didn't call him Uncle Mac, just me. But it was a, Mac, we're, uh, we're moving you, Pastor Finney, we're moving you to a different church. And he got to say, okay. Because that was the authority. And if he got moved, he got moved. That, that happens at different churches and different denominations like that. Southern Baptists don't have that. The, the, what we have is a cooperative program that we jump together. I grew up thinking that the reason that Baptists, because I've worked in several different denominations, um, including Bible churches, and, uh, which have, uh, don't even have a convention yet. Um, but the idea is, is, that they, is that I thought that it was like schools. That like the reason that Baptists were always about trying to get you to be a member is because that affected how much money they got from the convention, right? There was like schools, like however many students you have, that dictates how much money the government spends you. Let me just tell you, that's not the direction the money flows. Um, we give money to the convention so that the convention can use it for other things. And on top of that, we don't need the help. So this is part of the issue is that we would go, well, what do we get from being a part of this convention? And the answer is probably not a whole lot because... We're a well-established, healthy church. But that's not true of all 50,000 of those churches. Some of them are really struggling, and some of those missionaries are off in, in the translating or, or speaking the gospel in different languages or whatever they're doing, and they need that help from the convention, and no one church could do it. So we all come together and do that. That's all that the convention is. So one, I want you to know what that is. Um, that that's what that, and we could be more or less involved. We're not particularly involved as a church, in the convention, um, we haven't had people come forward and say, this is my passion. I want to be a part of this. I want to go vote. I want to pass resolutions. I want to do all that kind of stuff. If that's you, let us know. We'd be happy to, to, to send you into that world um, if that's something that you would be passionate about. But we haven't because it just hasn't been a highest priority for us. Maybe that was a mistake. Here's what happened in 2018, 2017, about that period of time. So in the, in the late 20-teens, some people begin to come forward and say there's a problem at the convention level, which is the convention, the convention, the leaders in the convention know that there are some problems. There have been some abuse cases. There have been some uh, harassment cases and those kind of things that have gone on. And the convention knows about it and they haven't done anything about it. Now, one, let me just comment and say, remember, they have no authority. There's not a whole lot they could do about it. For example, if we had a harassment situation or an abuse situation or whatever in our church, our leadership board would deal with it. Um, if it was appropriate, it would be communicated to the church body. That's how we would, we would deal with it here. It wouldn't have even crossed my mind to let the Southern Baptist Convention know that we had dealt with an issue like that. They have no authority to do that. And in fact, if you'll remember, some of you who are here, when I read the original concern, um, I read all 300 pages of it. I thought, well, that's part of my job, so I'm going to do that. I read all 300 pages of the report, and at the end of the report, they had several dozen recommendations for churches. We should be doing this moving forward. I don't know if you remember, but I came up and said, we're doing all of them and more. We were already, we were a decade ahead of the recommendations. We have always had these things in place. 
Um, we're always improving upon them and making them better and safer um, for our people and for the people who would be here for um, any other reason. So, so that's, that's something to be aware of is that that's the case. So the convention just met and I wanted to see, I told you I wanted to see, and our leadership board really wanted to see what the convention was going to do in regards to these findings. How are they going to respond? So let me summarize very quickly some of those things. Um, this is what the world is saying about it. The Houston Chronicle reported it like this. They, meaning the Southern Baptist Convention, passed reforms and elected leaders who have been outspoken advocates for survivors. They delivered one rebuke after another to a hardline splinter group led by former leaders who covered up abuses and actively opposed even basic safeguards. In other words, the world looked at what the convention did and said, good. Religious, religion news services said this, this historic and decisive vote seemed to show that the SBC's members have taken their heads out of the sand and have committed themselves to face the scandal with some measure of transparency, realism, and grace. So again, even the worldly media has seen that what, is what the convention did and said, okay, that's good, that's encouraging, which was kind of the feeling I had. Um, the SBC is now developing curriculum for churches. They have released the database of abusers. They are creating panels for training and education, creating a new way to track pastors and other church workers accused of abuse, and to create another new task force to oversee these reforms. They passed two overarching resolutions that I will summarize here. I don't know if we still have them out. Last week we printed out the full resolutions and had them ready because we thought this is what I was going to be talking about, and we had a new cultural cataclysm between, those, between the two Sundays. But... Um, if they're out, great. If not, you can look them up or we can get them out. These are a tight summary. They're several pages long each. Okay, so I'm <laughs> not doing that. So here's resolution five, the summary of it. And this is my summary, so I apologize. In 2021, resolution five says this. Sexual abuse was identified as a permanent, quote, permanently disqualifying action for all positions of church leadership. The pastors should be held to at least as high a standard as secular professionals. Several states, including Texas, have passed laws labeling such acts, even with consent, as illegal because of the trust and power differential between a pastor and a congregation member. The Southern Baptist Convention wants these kind of laws in every state. Reporting such behavior would be protected from civil liability, to call for transparency between churches about abuse so that leaders cannot merely move churches and hide again. All in all, this resolution might be understood by some in the, the, the language in the midst of it. By the way, I want you to hear this term, this phrase. The, this one was referred to by this phrase, and this is a harsh phrase, but a right one. This is meant to protect the church from, quote, wolves in shepherd's clothing. Yeah, that's pretty good, isn't it? Man, I got my attention. That was, our, that was resolution one, is how we can protect the church from wolves and shepherds' clothing. Uh, resolution six was on lament and repentance for sexual abuse. Um, I love to see uh, appropriate repentance done right. Um, not, none of this like, well, I'm sorry if stuff, you know, that we all hate and we all do. Um, here it says, sexual abuse is an abomination before God and an affront to Scripture. It grieves Christ and contradicts the heart of the gospel. It is a violation of the image of God and harms those that the church is entrusted to protect. 
Within the church, it is a violation and failure at every level of the very purpose of the church. Sexual abuse has occurred within our churches at the hands of members and leaders, and the convention of churches has failed to care well for the abused and have at times sought first to protect leaders rather than care for the abused and caused harm to the survivors. No punches pulled. Straight up. There has been a failure of education and preparation, a failure to report and a failure to protect. We denounce these, resolve to seek justice and protect and honor the victims, and further lament and apologize, ask forgiveness, and publicly repent and acknowledge the need for comprehensive change, including the teachings in our churches, the giving of time and resources to help the wounded, and by name, we repent to those in the report who we failed to protect. Again, that's repentance done right. That is as as big a confession of sin. Now, it's interesting because it uses the term we all through it. And as a Southern Baptist church, we're part of that we. Several people at the convention took offense at that because apparently they don't understand what a church is. Um, Sorry, that was a little editorial there. Um, uh, They didn't want to be lumped in with the perpetrators, they said. I heartily approve of the we here. And, And keep in mind, We're a church that has had all of these things in place since we began to exist as a church. And I still think it's appropriate that we are a part of we. We are the church. Remember that what separates us from the world ought to be, it ought to be our distinct and different attitudes and behaviors. It ought to be. Thankfully, it sometimes is. However, what actually does separate us from the world is nothing more than that we have accepted the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. We didn't earn it. We didn't work for it. We didn't make it happen. It is purely the acceptance of a free gift. He overcame sins, not us. All of us and each of us need help. At best, at our very best, we are not good enough. That's the gospel, stage one. At your very best, you are not good enough. I am not good enough. At our worst, we are truly awful. All of us, any of us, at our worst are truly awful. None of us are somehow transcendent of some sin. We can and ought to be quick to accept our failure as a community, quick to repent, and quick to seek forgiveness in all of our relationships, especially with each other. Yes, I would like to think South Spring has handled this better than most. In our preparation, and in our training, and in our equipping, and in our honest speech. Our leadership board will continue to examine the lessons and responses we need to have as a church. But here's one that I have already in place. I want you to hear this. Many of you can now see why we have such a high standard for things like training and paperwork. Something as simple as paperwork. Now you understand why it's there. People complain, oh, I want to go go serve, but there's all this paperwork I've got to get done. Oh, I've got to get these recommendations turned in. Why is it so hard to get to serve? Well, now you know why. Now you get an idea why. Let me tell you, I decided a few years ago that we were going to develop training programs for all our different ministries, and then there was going to come a point when if you hadn't been through the training program, you were uninvited from serving. And I got some pushback for that. People saying, I've been teaching 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. Why should I have to be trained? This is why. Because every single one of those abusers could have said the exact same thing. They've been at it 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years. 
The very same people covering up abuse could say that. They had already done learning. They didn't have anything else to learn, I guess. If your mindset is, I don't have anything else to learn, you're probably not fit to serve. That's not how the gospel works. That's not how the work of Jesus Christ works. We're disciples. We're always learning new things. We're always being, having to have our attitudes adjusted by his word. Some of these abusers had been teaching and leading for decades. See, all of us think that everyone else should be vetted and trained. We all think, we all know everyone else needs to be vetted and trained, but we know we don't. That is a wrong attitude, and we're not standing by it. If anything, I am more dedicated to this than I ever was because of these findings. Is that this is who we are. We're going to continue to have hard conversations as much as I hate them. I hate calling people in and having hard conversations. They're no fun. But we have to have these hard conversations because if we don't, people will be abused. And I don't want that to happen here. Here, we never reach the point of being beyond further education and opportunities for growth. If and when the training isn't good enough, and God knows that can happen, then our assumption is you're going to step in and help us make it more excellent. That's what we're going to ask of you. Not that you just complain about it, but if it's not good enough to inspire you to want to be part of it, then come help us make it excellent. That's what we want to do. We're always trying to make things better. This is eternally serious stuff. And I also will say, I feel like maybe as a church, we failed in trying to get the word out about this. We tried for a couple of years to let people know about the training and stuff that we had, the safety measures that we put in place. And we typically just got pushed back from other churches or, or some version of, listen, we just don't want to open that can of worms attitude. Um, and we should, and we gave up and we should have kept pushing and kept pushing and kept pushing. So that's an area where we could have done better. And we will, I have now uh, sent our material and links to our materials to everyone I know at the convention level and other churches. If you have other contacts at those levels, let us know, because we'd love to get that out. Um, hopefully we will actually be hosting for Smith County, a training for what we do here um, for any church that wants to come and send their people here for free. Um, that's our goal is to do that this fall. That's not because we're got all the answers and that we're God's gift to this stuff. We're just way ahead of the game and have people trained in these things in ways a lot of other churches don't. So I want to pray, and I'm going to pray in particular, the leadership board is going to continue to be discussing and looking into this. I hate that we've taken up so much of the sermon time to do it, but I believe uh, it's something that we need to be able to talk about openly because we've also learned talking openly about it is one of the things that chases off people who are here to be wolves. And that's, that's what we want. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that you would protect us from ever harboring a wolf in shepherd's clothing. Um, Lord, I pray <clears throat> that you would reveal that to us. That if there's anyone here today who's here for um, wrong reasons, for bad motives, to prey on people who are victims, Lord, I pray that you would reveal them to us. Or more importantly, that you would reveal this truth to them in such a way that they are, they are crushed to their knees and repentance to you for their wrong attitudes, and instead they would come and seek forgiveness and repentance. Lord, we're not afraid to be broken. We're not afraid to be dark and sinful. Uh, we're not afraid that those things are true in each of us and all of us. Um, Lord, we just know that you want to set us free from that, and that you've given us the grace and freedom to do so, and we want to be the kind of church where those conversations can be had. Lord, I pray for your protection on us. We're going to continue to water, and we're going to continue to tend the soil Lord, our prayer is that you would make things grow exactly the way you want them to, at exactly the speed and rate that you want them to, and exactly the kind of fruit that you want produced. Lord, I pray, South Spring, it's your church, 
And we return it to you every day. And we ask that you would do what you want done in the name of your mighty Son. Amen. If at any point you have questions about any of this, or you want follow-up in any way, we'll continue to talk about it when it seems necessary. But don't hesitate to send me an email if you want to know my thoughts on something or the leadership board's thoughts on something, or you want us to wrestle with a specific aspect of this. Don't hesitate. All right. Second Peter. From the beginning of his letter, and by the way, I've got three weeks to finish Second Peter, um, including the, what's left of today's time, which is like seven minutes. Um, and so uh, I, I'm just going to preach until I run out of time each of these three weeks um, and, and letting the Lord just reveal whatever the application is as we go through it and however far I get. Um, uh, and so... I'm going to go back. We're going to pick up some steam and head back into this because it's been a couple of weeks. From the beginning of the letter, Peter wanted his readers to embrace the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, this is kind of actually weird in the letters from the apostles. Um, It's weird for them to focus on knowledge, mainly because um, a lot of what they were trying to do in their letters was to shut down a false teaching that had tried to leech itself onto Christianity called Gnosticism. Gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge. And so Gnosticism was this belief that the way you could connect to the divine was through special supernatural knowledge that no one else had. And so that's what made you right with God was the fact that you knew the special magic secret knowledge. Um, it's really kind of horrible and ridiculous. Um, uh, you can study it on your own. And, but like, for example, First John is written almost entirely. John is trying to rid the church of Gnostic teaching. And so that letter, if you don't understand it that way, makes little sense. Um, but if you understand that's what he's doing, he, he basically goes through the basic tenets of, of Gnostic theology, and then he just knocks them down one after the other, um, which is what he's doing. So it's odd that Peter would have such a focus on knowledge, on the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Um, Knowing and accepting the truth is everything. There's a life that comes with knowing the actual truth, knowing what the truth is, and absorbing that, accepting that, living according to that. There's an amazing life that comes with that. Uh, That being said, uh, he keeps going and says, and wants us to know, that he points out back in chapter 2, he warns us that there are going to be false teachers And false teachers are people who distract us and deceive us from that truth that gives life. And instead, they try to distract us and deceive us with all kinds of other teachings that lead to instead corruption, decay. So he wants us to have the knowledge so that we can stand in the face of those corrupting false ideas and stand firmly in them. Then we're reminded as well as we get into chapter 3 that there not only will be false teachers, but there will be scoffers. People who are mocking the gospel. These aren't just people who are, who are teaching against it, right or wrong. These are people who are going to mock it, who are going to make fun of the truth. In particular, these scoffers, for example, will deny that the universe was created. That it was an intentional creation of a knowing God. And we're still, 2,000 years ago, dealing with that same mocking attitude sometimes. It's intriguing to see that. I've said before, I have, I've had friends who were in the, in the atheist or secular or naturalist mindset that everything only has a natural explanation. And what struck me was how often they talk about God more often than I do. Um, that their, their Facebook posts and Instagram posts and whatever posts, have more, they have more God references than I do. And I'm a professional Christian. 
They can't get him out of their mind. They're always talking about him, and usually with as mocking and disdaining a tone as they can possibly manage. And, and it, that strikes me. That, that's the idea of a scoffer, a mocker. They, they ignore the fact that God spoke things into existence, and they overlook the fact that, that God is willing to judge. He judges. He's not afraid to judge. After all, remember Peter says, he flooded the known world and killed, wiped out everybody, wiped out civilization at that time with water. And Peter wants us to hear he's going to do it again someday with fire. And that he's coming back to bring his kingdom here. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. We're going to have to unpack that in the next couple of weeks. The king is coming back for his kingdom. The groom is coming back for his bride. In other words, we haven't been abandoned. There are times when we may think, hey, you know what? The world's closing in. Now would be a good time. Now would be a good time to come back. Any time now, now would be good. And we start getting nervous. Where is he? The scoffers ask. You keep saying he's coming, but it's already been decades. Remember when this was written. At that time, the scoffers were already mocking, even though it had only been about 30 or 40 years since Jesus had been resurrected and ascended into heaven and said he was coming back. And they're going, in 30 years, when's he coming? There's a lot of strange things Christians do and believe in, for sure, especially if you're unaware of the context. A single church service, you going to a single church service just one time can often leave you confused. Because especially like this, we're preaching through a passage, through a whole book, and if, if you don't know the, the context and layout of the book, it can be confusing, and I apologize for that. There's no way around it. But today, as we begin the process of Peter turning his attention from the past, what Christ has done, and even from his own present, what Christ is doing, and even not only into his future, but our future, we're now moving into something that in theological terms is called eschatology, meaning the study of the end times, the study of the end of, uh, of the human time. The redemption here is interwoven into these concepts. So, of course, they're going to be taught together, so you watch for them. They'll get as far as we get in the next couple of minutes. He wants us not only to remember what God did, but what God will be doing. And this stuff can be a little strange as we get into it, so buckle up. He starts with people wondering where, if God is coming back. Is he? And by the way, I think we ought to be honest in the fact that how easy it is for us to identify with these mockers and these scoffers. After all, for them, it had been 30 or 40 years. For us, it's been 2,000 years. I mean, come on, if he was going to come back, wouldn't he have come back during World War II? Would he have come back during the Crusades? Would he have come back during the Protestant Reformation or the split between the Roman Catholics and the Orthodox Church? I mean, any of those would have been great times for him to show back up. Maybe just when the temple fell in AD 70, that would have been an obvious time for Jesus to come back. There's been a lot of really obvious times to go like, no, surely it's now. And in fact, most generations of Christians have thought, surely it's now. It's going to happen. It's not been decades, it's been 2,000 years for us. 50 generations of humans have come and gone. Most of whom hoped that Jesus would come back during their generation. If you've ever been tempted to fear or to doubt, to go, man, it's such a long time. You've got good company. I think most of us feel that at times. Peter did. That's why he's now going to tell us where we find comfort when we ask ourselves those questions too. How do we deal with this? See, he knows Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. A desire fulfilled is a tree of life. 
Our hope for the return of Jesus Christ has been deferred. It keeps getting postponed. Decade after decade and century after century and now after two millennia. Peter understood and so after the series of things to be warned against, he also wants to comfort us with a couple of things. Here's a few things we shouldn't overlook. Verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, God doesn't feel the same sense of impatience that we do. When you're an eternal, self-existent being, you're never in a hurry. God has never experienced a sense of urgency. He's never thought, oh, man, I'm running short of time. The timer's now counting into the negative. I got I to gotta finish this sermon. I got to wrap this up. I, gotta, um, I read a book years ago called Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert Heinlein. Um, I read a, a lot of different types of things. I don't recommend it. Um, he's an atheist science fiction writer who died. Well, he's not atheist anymore. He died several years ago. Um, and so in this, and he, but he knew the Bible really well. And so <clears throat> he liked to use the title of his books to be Bible verses. So Stranger in a Strange Land is about a human raised by creatures that don't age. And so this human has no concept of hurrying, of rushing. of, And this is such a core part of what it means to be human. We rush around everywhere, Right. Uh, the Lord of the Rings fans out there can remember the conversation between the Ents and the humans or whatever and how, how weird this conversation is like. We're never in a hurry. We're never anything. There's a great moment in Stranger in a Strange Land that I appreciate where this character who has no concept of hurry, has no language for it, he has no intuition for it, he kisses a woman and she passes out because she's never been kissed by a man who wasn't in a hurry before. She's never had someone kiss her who wasn't anxious and wasn't thinking and didn't have urgency and wasn't thinking about what's next and wasn't, and just somebody who's just experiencing the moment. And to just make contact with a person like that would be shocking. For them, a day would be like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. What's the big deal? It's a thousand years. That's not a big deal. That's just a day. Stephen pointed out a couple of weeks ago that God's timing is not ours. His clock doesn't run like ours. Remember when he talked about uh, the pound cake, waiting on the pound cake to cook? And how as a kid, you just sit there going like, come on, come on, when's it going to be ready? And, what's the, and, and I've got to accept all these negative, all, all, these, all these inferior products until the pound cake is ready. God doesn't feel that. Where does Peter get the idea that God's experience of the passage of time, how does he come to that? Well, of course, he's a good Jew, so he's quoting a psalm. Psalm 94 says this, A thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday... When it is past. A thousand years goes by as for God, and it's like a day went by. Or as a watch in the night. So again, if you try to, if you ever see somebody do the math, like, see, a day is a thousand years, so it's been two days, point, blah, no, 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 that's bad uh, hermeneutics. This is saying, or like a watch in the night. A watch in the night is three hours. So the, the point is, he experiences a passage of time very different from us. We go through a thousand years. For him, it's been like a single watch in the night. Two thousand years to us feels like forever. 2,000 years doesn't feel like two days. It feels like 730,000 days because that's how many days it is. It's a, it's a long time. We're like children asking, are we there yet? And we don't know. We could just be barely out of the driveway or we could just be two minutes from where we're going. We don't know. Do you guys ever pull that with your kids when they, everybody has different answers they give their kids because all kids somehow intuitively because of their sin, inver, internal sin, know to ask this question, Right. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? I was always like, yes. <laughs> and they would go, but we're not. Well, then why did you ask? 
mean, if you know we're not there, why ask? Are we there yet? Are we still driving? That would be an indicator we're not there yet. Or you do the five minutes thing, right? We'll, five, we'll be there in five more minutes because you know they don't understand five or minute. They don't understand those two words. And then they start throwing it back at you later, like, just five more minutes, mom. You're like, you don't know what five means or what minute means, but you're asking for five minutes. Anyway, so we're all, we're just like that. We're just kids. We don't know what we're doing. It's been a long time. And God's like, not really. It's not been that long, not by my standards. But here's why we even get in this passage, I'm going to wrap up on this thought. We even get from this passage his motivation for why it's taking so long. (coughs) We get his motivation for that. He has more he wants to save. He's not being slow. He's being patient. He's not just taking his time for no reason. He has a reason, and it's a good reason. He's not not shutting off the door. He's not closing the door and locking it. He's not starting the meeting because people are still showing up. In fact, according to several different websites I looked at, it's approximately 7,400 converts a day right now in Christianity. 7,000, almost 7,500 people every single day come to know Christ around the world. Which of those 7,500 people do you want him to cut off? Which of them, everybody's getting in the pool. And there's going to come a day when God's going to go, everybody out of the pool. Who do you want him to cut off? He doesn't want to cut off anybody. So he's taking his time. I'm not shutting the door yet. I know you guys are getting impatient, but I've got more guests coming. I'm not shutting the door until all the guests are here. When will that be? Only he knows. We don't. When is the right time to close that door? I can't fathom it. I have no idea when it would be. I don't know how you'd make that call. It tells us here, verse, I'm going to wrap up with this verse. Actually, I'm going to read this as our closing verse. Here's what I want you to hear from all that. This is a God, and we sang about this, and, and we're talking about this. This is an inclusive God. This is a God who, he's, he didn't say, listen, it's just this group of people, they're my people, and that's it. He used those people to then teach the truth to the world, and through that, reveal himself through his son to the whole world, and say, come on. Listen, come on. Now, one of these days, he is going to get everybody out of the pool. There is going to be time for judgment. We're going to talk about that next Sunday. But in the meantime, come on. Now's the time. I've been, maybe he's been waiting for you now for 2,000 years. And he wants you to join the party. And he's not willing that any, he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to get to know him. He knows how valuable that is. He doesn't want anybody to get left out. Why would that, why would, he would never want that. Come on. So anybody who doesn't know him in a second, when we stand and when we pray, if you go, I don't know him. I don't know there's a God who loved me that much, who realized I couldn't do it on my own, so he came and took care of my problem himself and is now inviting me freely to have that and experience that. Might not be great. If that's you, come up here and let us know or pray with someone in the room who you know loves Jesus. You may know someone who much better than you know, know me or, or John or whoever's up here. Like you, you may know someone. Pray with them in a second. I hope you will if that's new for you, or that's news for you, or if you get it now, finally. We're going to unpack the study of the day of the Lord, or a thief coming in the night, and a new heaven and a new earth over the next couple of weeks. Really cool, important stuff. So I hope you'll be here. It's very encouraging, and very challenging, and a little scary at times. So I hope you'll get to come experience that. Stand with me, if you will. So whether it's for any of the reasons that we've talked about in today's passages, that you want to come up here and pray, I'd love for you to do that. If you want to come talk to me or or talk to somebody else, I'd love for you to do that. 
If you've been through our welcome home process, if you've talked to Lance and you've talked to other people in the church and you're ready to come and join our dysfunctional family, we'd love for you to do that. Whatever it is that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about, I pray you would listen and respond to what he is saying. Let me read this next passage that we'll get to next week. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The very words of God.